0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in. Um, we are Cohen Apartment Investors, and this is our Apartment Investing Podcast. We've got Lee Harris, our President and CEO, Ryan Huffman, our COO, and my name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm Managing Director for CEAI Fund 23 and Fund 24. Today, we're going to run through a case study on another one of our recent sales, um, an apartment called Pine Crossing in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and this one has several different really interesting um, deal structures and the way that things moved for the property over the course of time and, and the way that we executed um, our business plan on this property. So Ryan, maybe you can set the stage by sharing what got us really interested in the deal and then we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll start by saying Pine Crossing is a is a labor of love for me. Um, it was one of my first deals as director of the acquisition platform. Um, But this one was unique. So what I start with is, you know, all assets can have a story and don't pigeonhole yourself maybe into, I only do this, to where you're such a short vision because you can miss opportunities like this. Um, Pine Crossing was an older asset. It was built in 1972. It was renovated under the tax credit program in 2008 um, by a company called Banner. They did a 4% bond transaction on this particular deal and and did a true 60-40 deal. And what that means is 60% of the units were restricted at 60% AMI and 40% of the units were market rate. Um, And so it had a unique structure. You don't find that a lot in tax credit deals. A a lot of them, even if they have a 60-40, will opt for 100% um, of restriction so that they can get tax credits on the whole property. This one wasn't set up that way. That's creating an opportunity. Um, This was our first deal with Enterprise Community out of New York. Um, They have a unique fund structure where they discovered a way to get banks CRA credit um, for doing either self-imposed restriction or already in place restriction on properties which allows them to invest um, in more than just credits, but also in deals.
2: Ryan, let me, let me interrupt you, and you might explain the, re- the restriction that you're talking about. What, what's restricted?
1: Sure. So on, in low-income housing tax credit deals, they are designed to really focus on housing for the middle class. So those particular units are 60% of the area median income is what they are restricted at. So if the area median income is $100,000, then the the family can make no more than $60,000 in income. And that's a very high level way of explaining this intricate process. Those area median incomes are set every year by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And they'll adjust, and they adjust by the number of people in the household. And what's really interesting is it doesn't go up Symmetrically by household members. So here's an example: a one-person household may be restricted at sixty thousand dollars. A two-person household may only be at sixty-four. So it's not like you add members and you jump um, by a symmetrical amount. It's all set in there. So you have a much narrower band of resident profile that you're targeting specifically for those sixty percent restricted units.
2: Well, and then it it. it... By extension, it's the rents also that become restricted. Correct. Uh, so you might explain that as well. So the rents
1: are set at uh, what's called a maximum allowable calculation. And so HUD goes through and determines based on the area median income how much the total housing cost can be for a one, two, three, four bedroom unit. Okay. The total housing cost includes anything they are paying for the housing. So that means their rent plus all of their utilities. Um, and there's a what's called a utility allowance that's put out by each local housing authority that shows if I have a stove electric, here's how much it costs. If I have water that's gas, here's how much it costs. And you have to go down and circle what you have um, and then it drops out of utility allowance. So here's how that works. If the resident pays for all of their utilities, and let's pretend that the utility allowance is $150. So that's how much HUD expects them to pay in utilities for that unit every month. Let's say the maximum allowable rent is $900 for that unit. That means that you can only charge $800 in rent because they have $150 in utility. So you're talking at $950. I'm off a little bit, but You can see how it works for the illustration right you can you have rent plus utility allowance equals maximum allowable rent and you have to be at or below that calculation in order to maintain the affordability of the housing so that's how this deal was structured um what attracted us to it it's 192 units so it was a smaller transaction for us but it had a lot of potential and Enterprise, it was the first, one of the first deals in fund one for them. Um, So they were experimenting as well with this fund structure and how it worked. This fit right down the fairway of what they were looking to do. Um, It was a smaller transaction in terms of its overall capitalization. This was a total seven and a half million dollar transaction all cost in. Um, And our strategy was our tax credit rents were already at the max allowable calculation. So we weren't going to be able to increase the rents on 60% of the units beyond what the AMI went up every year. You know, call it 2% or 3% is usually what you're looking at. What we did do on this particular deal is focused on the market rate units. And we programmed about $775,000 to upgrade some exterior work Um, and to upgrade those market rate units where we programmed a general $60 bump. Uh, It wasn't an aggressive play um, in terms of what we were anticipating. And so, you know, the other uniqueness to this is at the time we did this deal, um, we did a floating loan, a floating rate loan with, I believe it was Fannie, um, because interest rates were really low. And so we put this deal into a float scenario, which helped a great deal with cash flow um, as well. So it underwrote very well, um, and we had our floating loan in position when we when we closed into the transaction.
0: So Lee, maybe you can speak to what happened after we closed. Like, how did we start executing on the business plan? What happened over the course of the first few years, and how did the dynamic change at that property?
2: Now this is a this is probably the poster child, if you will, for uh, how important that on-site management team actually is. Uh, In every way, shape, or form, we had uh, a rock star team here, starting with the property manager and an an assistant property manager, our maintenance folks, our housekeeping uh, was top-notch all the way around. Uh, and there was a great deal of care given by this team to uh, creating resident activities. Uh, one of our core values is customer fulfillment. And it's, it pleases me no end to brag that the Pine Crossing was at the top of our leaderboard uh, with our net promoter score literally every month for, for several years. Wow. Uh, uh, and, it, and, and not just at the top, but they had a phenomenal score. I think uh, it was always plus 80 or more, which is just world-class. So, they, they kept the property full from an occupancy standpoint. The delinquency rate was very low. Uh, even with an affordable component, it was very low. Uh, the residents stayed and they paid. The, the, the turnover was quite low as well. Uh, and so, I would, I would say that this was a flawless execution, at least from a management standpoint from the very beginning, which put us in a terrific position to refinance the property, which Ryan can talk about. Uh, after a couple of years, we, we were able to refinance. Actually, it was more than two years. I think it was, what, three years in, Ryan, something like that. Uh, but uh, I again, I can't say enough about how important it was that uh, this site team they, they, they were stable and they knew what they were doing and executed just perfectly for us.
1: And I want to piggyback on that before I get to the, the refinance component, which is the next piece of the execution because Lee, when you say resident activities, let's let's talk about what those were. I mean, you really they really created a sense of community here um, beyond any expectation I think anybody had they had an annual pool party. And I mean, they pulled out all the stops for this pool party. They had an annual Easter egg hunt. They had a Thanksgiving potluck. They held holiday events at the property. And all of these events were so well attended. We have photos of, I mean, literally dozens and dozens of folks from that property participating in these activities. And that is not easy to do from the management standpoint. A lot of times what you find is people start those activities and at first you don't get a lot of participation. And so they kind of fizzle out. But if you keep doing it over and over and repeat and listen to what the residents want, you can really create a community there that goes far beyond anything that you would have thought. And people love to live in those environments. And that's really hats off to the team because they they just blew the doors off for those activities and promoted them. Um, what that allowed us to do from back to the investment side is about three years into the deal, our partner was getting nervous about interest rates and they wanted to get into a fixed rate product. So we had not programmed this into our model um, when we were looking, but we started going down the path of refinance. And we settled on a HUD loan product. Um, It was a HUD 223F loan. Um, We were able to take out 95% of the equity in in this loan product. And we did that. And we were required by HUD to put about a million six into capital reserve. So I want you to think about that. We were able to take out 95% of the equity and cash out and the asset was fairly bulletproof when it came to its needs because I had this huge reserve in place that could handle anything you want. Now, some may be scratching their head saying, how did that happen? Because that's a roughly $8,000 a unit reserve. And, And HUD is a great, great loan product. They have great terms, fully amortizing product over 35 years, but what comes along with that is some of the HUD restrictions. And one of those is their reserve analysis. So HUD does go through each and every component on the property, and they have what's called a life cycle chart. And anything in 20 years that is going is going to go past its life cycle, they require you to reserve to replace it. So we had cabinets that were installed in 08 that had a 20-year lifespan. So in that 20-year plan, I had cabinet replacement. We had roof replacement. We had appliance and and flooring. Pretty much windows were in there as well because that has a 30 year lifespan under HUD. So you have to know what you're getting into when you go into the HUD loan product because it's not like a standard loan product and, and they are inflexible when it comes to that reserve analysis. You can't go in and say, hey, we're going to do this now or we don't, we're never going to do this. They're going to say, too bad. You have to reserve for it anyway. So that was a huge pop in return. And really created not a lot of differential in our in our debt service numbers, believe it or not. So that that was the first big win. Was the site had executed so well, the investment plan has had was ahead of pro forma, which allowed us to get that loan product put into position.
2: And I think uh, it probably should be clarified here that when we talk about a HUD loan product. Um, this is a HUD insured loan. We're not actually borrowing the money from the taxpayers, but uh, it's, a, it's an insured product. And it, it can be used for market rate uh, housing. It's not uh, you know, just what people consider section eight housing. It's not subsidized housing. Uh, it's just a, another loan product out there that has very favorable terms. As Ryan mentioned, a 35 year fully amortizing uh, maturity uh, fixed rate, a 1.17 debt service coverage ratio, very favorable terms. They are th- Those loans are very uh, co- complex and somewhat bureaucratic to, to work through the process, but to, at the end of the day, it's a good product. But it, again, there are all sorts of, of things that, uh, that HUD makes you do uh, if you're going to use such a beneficial product. So I think that's a clarification that's important here.
0: I agree. Lee, yep. how often do we use that product across we the use. U-
2: we've done it, we've used the 223F program more than the 221B4, which is a a, a, a program that's more in, in keeping with new construction or substantial renovation where you're doing, Uh, multiple major physical components. And that's not required in the 223F program. Part of the problem with uh, using these loans uh, is the length of time that it takes to get them executed. And if you're buying a property and trying to put a 223F loan in place, you don't have time to do that uh, within the, the market constraints that we have. Uh, So usually you would buy that on a bridge, a bridge note, and then you would spend the time necessary after you close uh, to put your permanent loan in place with the the F program.
0: So then, so then what happened after this refinance? Um, How did we get to today or about a week ago when the property sold? What occurred to make that happen? So,
1: I mean, we, we rode through it a couple of years and this was programmed for a seven year hold. Um, enterprise has a, you know, we do a between five and seven enterprises, typically a seven year hold. Um, and so we started looking at it, you know, part of what has to happen with that fund as well as they require a biannual, um, valuation on it in order to, for the fund purposes at enterprise. And so we'd gone out and we had gotten a broker opinion of value, which, For those of you not familiar, that's when you approach a brokerage, you give them some information and they come back and tell you a range of what the property is, could be sold at today. And we got that valuation, Lee, what was it? Early 21, maybe, for the fund, I think we looked at it.
2: Something like that, yeah. Um,
1: And, you know, in place as is with a loan assumption. The value was somewhere between call it 12 million seven and or 12 million two and 12 million seven. Unrestricted, meaning all cash offer uh, without a loan assumption, it was somewhere between 14 and 147. So that was the the broker opinion of value we had gotten. And to give everybody some idea of where this conversation began we had programmed selling the property for 8.2 million to get to our 18.23% projected return. So you can see from this, we were already above that by a pretty substantial amount. Um, What ended up happening here is something we don't do very often, which is we got an unsolicited offer to buy the property. And actually the story is we got an unsolicited offer to buy the property um, and that transaction never did culminate. In anything. Um, We got a second offer to buy the property um, for more than what the broker opinion of value was for. Um, In addition to that, they offered to pay 75% of the prepayment penalty to HUD, which is another nuance to the HUD loans is they have a 10-year roll off of the prepayment penalty and it starts at 10% and drops 1% a year. So that's something to consider. So being two years into the loan, we had an 8% prepayment penalty on this, this loan product, and they paid 75% of it. When you ran that calculation through, it was a no-brainer that this unsolicited offer, A, we saved cost, we saved marketing cost on the property. This was also a buyer that our limited partner was very familiar with because they do deals with enterprise in another area of enterprise. So it kind of collectively was a bird in the hand and a and a really great. Um, marriage to be able to sell the property to to this particular buyer and their plan is to take the property back through the tax credit program. So that that all plays into what enterprise's mission is and that's how we got to the idea of a contract was from that totally unsolicited offer which we don't normally do because of course the market as we've discussed is so frothy you want that that competitiveness out there but this was just an offer. I say, make me an offer I can't refuse. And this was the offer we can't refuse.
0: Well, our investors were certainly happy. Um, our co-invest fund investors realized a 34.1% IRR. So that's really, really strong. And I don't think anybody would have guessed that that would be the outcome in the early days, even as well as this property was performing. So our investors were really pleased, um, The only thing that was too bad was it was a smaller property. So if we can replicate that on a larger scale, um, of course, that'd be very exciting as well. Um, Anything else, Lee, that you wanted to add about this property? No,
2: no, I guess, uh, again, from a market standpoint, Columbus, Ohio uh, was and continues to be a very strong uh, intermediate sized market. Um, and, And that certainly helped. We've been in Columbus before with property on a management basis, uh, we buy there again. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. All right. Well, thanks Lee. Thanks Ryan. Thanks everybody for listening.